Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 12, our final episode in this season. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England and podcast host of this podcast, Doctor Informed. In this season of Doctor Informed, we've been discussing topics relevant to hospital doctors. Those coffee room conversations that we have or wish we'd had earlier that give us light bulb moments but are nowhere to be found in any of the How to Be a Doctor books. So I think you'd be pretty hard pushed to find a UK doctor who hasn't heard of the GMC or General Medical Council. And anyone that has heard of the GMC will be used to getting a flurry of emails once a year to remind us all to fill in the GMC National Training Survey. But what is it? What is all that data used for and where does it go? And once we have the data, and we do for this year, what do we do about what it shows? Here to tell us about that today, and of course to fix all the problems of new training doctors, is Colin Melville, the Medical Director and Director of Education Standards at the GMC. Colin, I'm sure you do a lot more than that, so please tell the listeners of our podcast a little bit more about yourself and how you found yourself in this role. Yeah, thanks Clara, Uh, and it's an absolute pleasure to be um, with you. I feel sort of honoured to be the back end or the book end of an important um, season, so that's great. Yeah, my background is as a doctor, you've alluded to that. Uh, I'm still on the register, I still pay my fees. Uh, And um, I started out in anaesthesia, but I'm on the register in fact for anaesthesia and uh, emergency medicine, or what was called A&E in my day. And then I got involved in education, so I've had roles in both uh, postgraduate education. I was involved in the setting up of foundation training, for example, in 2005. Uh, Then I got involved in undergraduate, working at Hull York Medical School, and then more latterly at Warwick, which is a graduate entry programme. Finally, as a head of Lancaster Medical School before I joined the GMC in 2017. And it was only at that point that I took the decision to give up my clinical work which was part of my my role uh, and most of it was in in intensive care so I was an intensive care medicine um, specialist consultant so but since then I've taken on this role as director responsible for all of the education and standards so anything to do with training uh, also the ethics and the good medical practice which we're about to publish hopefully just um in a couple of weeks after this podcast goes out. So it's it's been a great opportunity and a great privilege and it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for sharing your very, very precious time with us because I'm sure that there's a lot of demands on it, especially at the moment. Um, We're really here to pick your brains about the results and some of the themes that came out in this year's National Training Survey. Um, But to help me uh, give this an on-the-ground trainee perspective, I'm really pleased to be joined by our long-term panel member, Aisha Ashmore. Aisha, please tell our listeners who you are. Hi, Clara. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back again. I'm um, I'm honoured to be invited back um, numerous times. Um, but to people who don't know me, I am an Ovs and Gynae trainee um, in the East Midlands. So, Colin, I think it would only be right to start at the very beginning and explain what the GMC National Training Survey is and what its aims are, both for our international listeners and also for the UK doctors who do not read their emails. (laughs) 
Yes, well, I can't answer the last part of your your point, but um, <laughs> yeah. So we often abbreviate it to the NTS, don't we? The National Training Survey, uh, and it's a survey which goes out every year to everybody who's in an approved training program, and we validate and correct that data by using information from the deans. So they help us to make sure that we're sending it to all the right people. Um, but it also includes anyone who's involved as a trainer, typically an educational or clinical supervisor, um, who's on, on our annotated list. And we send a set of questions. Many of them are very similar. Some of them are specific to the two different groups. And from that, that gives us a picture uh, where we can build up um, a picture and a pattern, if you like, for the whole of the UK. But we can also uh, take that down in, in layers, as it were, so we can look at it by different countries, we can look at it by regions of England, we can look at it by specialty, um, and in fact, uh, right down to granular levels, individual departments. Um, and maybe I can just say thank you uh, to everyone who has completed it, because actually it's, an, it's a, uh, an amazing thing that we've been able to do this over so many years, and we're getting some really helpful longitudinal data. So although the UK picture probably doesn't change a huge amount year on year, we see peaks and troughs in other areas where there's great practice on the one hand that we can share, uh, and there are also areas where we use it um, to ensure that our standards are met, particularly uh, as it relates to patient safety and, and trainee safety. So there's a thing called Data Explorer, which anyone can access. Uh, it's on the GMC website. If you type GMC Data Explorer into your favorite web search engine, uh, you'll be able to get to it and you can look at your department or your hospital um, or your specialty, et cetera, et cetera, and find out uh, how, how, how your colleagues have rated training in that particular area. I did do that recently and I found it fascinating. There's a wealth of information on there, which I just never really realized that you could access. So um, yeah, agree. That's a, it's a really, really good tool. There's obviously absolutely loads to cover in this, uh, this year's report. I think we could talk for hours about this and probably not even scratch the surface. So I've tried to sort of divide things up systematically. Um, and I wanted to start with the sense that the report gives of how the workforce, and I, I hate saying the workforce, like we're sort of automatons, but, you know, trainees in the UK, how we're feeling. Because I know that this report is a little bit of a barometer um, for that. And I suppose the first thing that jumped out at me um, was th the theme of well-being and burnout, so one of the quotes I've got here is, across the UK, two thirds are now at high or moderate risk of burnout, the highest level since we started tracking this in 2018. And I just wanted to sort of pick up on that idea. We've talked about burnout to death, particularly recently on this podcast, and this often gets blamed on the pandemic. Do you think that that's why burnout is happening, Colin? Or do you think that, that you know, we're unfairly scapegoating the pandemic and actually that there's other things going on? If I'm honest, and this is probably more a personal view than a, and to the GMC view, I had a look a bit further into this. So you'll know that we use something called the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory. And, and we only look at one of the three parts of that, which is about the risk of burnout in the workplace. And the team that did that have, have validated it. So I think, you know, sometimes we say, oh, you shouldn't be using this or that. There are other tools, and I'm involved in some research using another tool. But for our purposes, and interestingly, the NHS survey, staff survey, which is, of course, for England, uses the same questions um, and shows a similar pattern. 
but it is doctors who seem to have the higher uh, risk. And if you go to uh, WHO, they will say that the evidence shows that those who are at risk of burnout are more likely to suffer from mental health issues and mental illness. So that makes it, for me, a really important issue. Is it a UK issue? Well, there's also a report from McKinsey. I don't know if you've seen this, but McKinsey looked around the world at different countries. And actually, this issue of risk of burnout is not unique to the UK. And so I suspect it's not to do with the pandemic. I suspect it's mm. a broader structural question about you know, what our expectations are about the workplace uh, and, and how that workplace is managed. You know, we talk about efficiency, don't we? But eventually efficiency can become inefficiency and that might be a factor. I think that's really interesting. You should you should mention that. I, I think it was, um, I'll, tr I'll try and link it in the show notes if I can find it. Um, I read a really interesting piece in The Eye a few weeks ago um, about about burnout and how it wasn't looking specifically at healthcare, but how cynicism is actually one of the main sort of projections of, of people who are really, really burnt out, people becoming very, very cynical. Um, and I think this is something that, I, I mean, I feel is quite palpable across the NHS at the moment. Aisha, is this something you've noticed? Are there other markers of burnout that you think you pick up on as a trainee? I think there's, yeah, there, there are quite a few... Um, markers I think um, particularly around kind of expressing you know negative experiences of things and it was interesting because I think this is one of the things that came out in the training so the national training survey this year that um, you know emergency medicine obs and gynae ophthalmology they were the those those were the specialties which had the highest risk of um, burnout but then it was also the the specialties which also experience the most negative um, elements of their training or um, or the workload um, or, you know, witnessing bullying and things like that. I, I think it's interesting that idea that, you know, all the sort of the negative things that the survey shows, you know, we've talked about burnout, well-being, and you've mentioned their discriminatory behaviour, which I, I want to come on to you next. You know, it's interesting that I don't think that the one exists without the other. And there probably is this sort of enmeshed um, pattern that, that's been, you know, created multiple things. Um, before we move on from, from sort of burnout and well-being, Colin, is there anything else that, you know, really struck you, particularly as somebody that was a clinician for a long time, that's about the change in, in burnout and the, the change in people's sort of general well-being on the ground? Yeah, it's a tricky one, though, isn't it? In the sense that we, we didn't have measures of it. Um, I was going to say I was a trainee in the last century, but that feels a bit old hat now. Um, but, but I think the, the sense of pressure does feel different. I mean, I left clinical practice at the end of 2016, but even from then till now, just hearing from other people, I, I think it does feel as if the system has become more pressured. I was very interested, actually, in your point about cynicism. Mm. Um, not that we probably want to men mention specific social media platforms, but the, um, a couple of them, I, I feel we've ended up in a very bad place. Uh, and, and maybe that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a reflection of that cynicism in, in the way in which we talk about each other. I mean, I, I was interested in some of the findings 
uh, chime hugely with a report that was led for us by Michael West and Denise Coyer in 2019, you know, that caring for doctors, caring for patients. We almost seem to forgot about it. We're good at doing that, aren't we? You know, reports come out and we put them on the shelf where they gather dust and nothing changes. But he started out in that, and I just picked up these quotes. I hope you can uh, bear with me. First, he said, we need leaders that act with compassion and care about staff well-being. Now, I know that historically, Terence Stevenson was attributed with saying that we need to, to grow doctors with greater resilience. But we moved on from there, and the world recognises that resilience alone does not solve this problem. And actually, it's not just about being resilient. It is about well-being. Um, and that, that sort of mindfulness. And that's why uh, Michael um, concluded, sadly, sadly Denise um, died before the report was finished, but he, he concluded very simply ABC, didn't he? Autonomy, belonging, competency, and bang in the middle there, belonging. Mm. And this strikes me as, as being really important. So in the first line of his executive summary, he says, medicine's a tough job. Well, don't think we're arguing with that, are we? But we make it far harder than it should be my neglecting the simple basics in caring for doctors' well-being. And, and then that takes me to, so well, who should do the caring? And whilst it's absolutely true that leaders have a responsibility, and I include clinical leaders at all levels uh, in that, including myself, that we need to role model the behaviours and the culture we wish to see. But I often ask people in meetings, so what do you mean by culture? Because that's a word that's banded around quite a lot, isn't it? And I always say, well, you know, culture is, is, is determined. It's not defined. It's determined by the values and behaviours of a group of people. And that means we're all responsible for the culture of the place where we work. So this kind of inter-team rivalry or professional rivalry or backbiting or complaining and even within specialties, that's not helping us. So there is a bit of me that says, do you know, some of the solutions to this are with us. As a profession, they're with us. It's not, you know, it's very easy to say, well, it's, it's him or her over there, or it's our leader or our chief exec. Actually, we all need to engage in being more compassionate. And can I, can I say this? Demonstrating greater kindness. I know that caused a bit of a stir when we um, included that in the consultation on, on the review of good medical practice. But I genuinely believe that's an important part of the nature of being a doctor. And, and I think that's, you know, that's really important. And the other bit of evidence is that patient satisfaction is markedly higher in healthcare organisations and teams where staff health and well-being are better. Mm. So to me, the, you know, it's, it's all there. It's, none of this is even new. What we're seeing is an adverse trend, um, as you rightly point out. So, you know, issues of concern about burnout are increasing. So the risks of what happens if we don't intervene are increasing. But some of the interventions are with us as a profession to address. And we can't simply say it's with everybody else. I'm not saying that others aren't involved, but you know, in that sense, we could be leading an important change. And I find that's quite a challenge to me as well. How, how am I with other people? Um, I, I said a few years ago that I think the NHS is fundamentally a compassionate place. But when it's under stress, you get compassion fatigue and then things start to happen that actually in the cool light of day, you probably regret and you wouldn't do. So we have to hold ourselves accountable, don't we, in order to, to, you know, to see some um, changes around that.
And I think, I mean, the fact that you've mentioned Michael West's report there and the fact that that report was in 2019, which was pre-pandemic, in case anyone had forgotten when that started, um, you know, that these issues have have clearly existed. And then, you know, I wonder if the pandemic kind of came along, eaten into people's bandwidth. You know, people are working harder at home, in the hospital. And the first thing that often goes, as you say, is, is the soft stuff, you know, the being nice to each other, the being compassionate, the being caring. Um, I think that probably circles nicely back um, to what you brought up, Aisha, before, which is the sort of second theme, which is hostility and discriminatory behaviours, which we see in the report. Aisha, when you read that, I mean, I know you've mentioned ONG and emergency medicine were up there on the hit list of where that's particularly bad. I think we you qualified at a similar time to me, so about 2015. And it's interesting, Colin, that you should say about 2016 being, you know, when things you've noticed there being a, quite a significant change. Because I wonder if that's just my perspective or if that's generic. Aisha, during that time, do you think in, in your specialty and other places you've worked that you've noticed people are meaner? I definitely think it's changed. So I did um, graduate in 2015 and I remember my F1 job um, as it was on the old contract, so we worked the, you know, 12 days in a row with an on-call weekend and four other evening on-calls. But somehow, back then, that was really manageable. And the reason for that was because we had a team structure. Everyone knew who was on their 12-day stretch. And, you know, you were just, because there was this sense of belonging, it was much easier to get through. It was much more manageable. You could cope. And, you know, even though you we were working far more, you were able, you know, you were protected from burnout in a sense. And as, and I guess in 2016, that's when the contract changed and we all went on to this new contract. And there was a kind of a, a dissolution of the team structure in, in the jobs that I had at that point. And then suddenly the cracks started to appear and you weren't, you didn't feel like people were looking out for you. I didn't feel like I belonged to any particular specialty or or group of people who would look out for me. And then that's when I started noticing, oh God, this is this is a lot harder than it used to be. Even though I was doing twelve days and was working all hours of um of every second for um for a particular month. So yeah, I do think there was a definite change then. But then I also think that. Um, you know, Colin, I think you were talking about the kind of interdisciplinary backbiting, which seems to be contributing to poor cultures and hostility. But I also think that's to do with kind of the attrition of, I guess, the doctor's mess, because I definitely see a difference between a DGH culture and then a big tertiary centre um, culture. I don't know if you've seen that, Clara, as well, because in the DGH, the doctor's mess is a lot more... Um, it, it's it's very social and you get to know the med reg, the surgical reg, the ops and gynae reg, mm. whatever. And you and when you start to have connections with people, you know, that those kind of friendly connections and relationships then translate into friendly, um, helpful relationships within the work setting as well. And then when you take that out of the DGH and put it into a tertiary centre, for some reason it doesn't work. And I guess that's because it's so big and so busy, you just don't get to develop those relationships. And I think that's really quite damaging. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you've brought up that, you know, firstly, the idea of belonging, and then secondly, the size. And I don't know, I I somewhat agree with you in the places I've worked where there is a place for doctors to go and be together, a mess, there is definitely a bit less d you know sort of 
poor behavior because you're less dehumanized you know the red reg is not the med reg they're your mate that you know from medical school and you've just had a coffee with them a couple of hours ago and generally your behavior towards them and their behavior to you you know you're not just a, a sort of a thing in the hospital you're not just part of a, co- a cog in a machine you're, you're a person um but I don't think I mean I've worked in DGHs equally where there's no mess and I've worked in uh, tertiary centres where there's a really good mess so I think maybe that's the thing rather than than the size of the hospital um one of the quotes from um Charlie Massey's statement um on the NTS I just want to pick up on this was um that one in five foundation trainees said that they'd been blamed for something they didn't do in their current post compared to one in ten on specialty or core programs and these issues are especially acute in certain specialties with more negative responses from surgery, obstetrics and gynae and emergency medicine. And I, th- I want to pick up on that idea that the more junior you are, the more likely you are to be the victim of sort of neg- negative or discriminatory behaviours. Um, and I straw polled a few people this week of varying ages and in varying specialties. And the response is really interesting. Um, a couple of people said, uh, and I'm just going to, these are all anonymous. Um, a couple of people said, oh, well, the junior doctors are more sensitive. Uh, a couple of people used the word snowflake. And I know we've discussed that on our generational difference um, podcast. Um other people said, well, they've just got better language for it. Others said uh, maybe they've just got less tolerance for bad behaviour. So actually, you know, people's standards are better than they used to be. Um, but I I don't know. I, I, I guess I haven't really honed down on why this is. And I'm interested, Colin, because I'm sure you have reflected on this at length. Do you, do you have any thoughts about why more junior trainees are more likely to report this? I mean, I don't. I don't think um, you know. For anyone listening to this, you're about to hear a, a revelatory answer that is the solution <laughs> to this problem. No, I have pondered on it, and it, in fact, it was one of the things I was looking at before we released the report. Was why? Why is that, and what might contribute towards it? So, one of the things um, that may be relevant is just the advance in knowledge. I mean, back when back when I was a student, which is even longer ago, <laughs> um, we we hadn't got half of the knowledge that we've got today. I mean, compliment. I can't I can't remember being. We had interleukin. You know, so this this amount of knowledge is huge, and I'm just wondering whether our expectations about what you can acquire as a proportion of the the knowledge you need to carry out the job for a foundation doctor in 2023 can in any way be compared to, wait for it, a pre-registration house officer, otherwise known (laughs) as PRHO, in 1983, which was when I graduated. And I think the world has changed massively. So that's Mm. possibly one factor. There is a challenge around the question of the preparedness of foundation doctors, I don't know if you picked this up, but um, we noticed that the, and of course it is a perception survey, so I absolutely accept that. The perception of, of foundation doctors in 2023 of their sense of preparedness for work is falling. Mm. Interestingly, it reached a peak of 71% or thereabouts in, in 2021. Now, that survey 
was the cohort of F1s that we worked with in the interim F1 year. Do you remember them? They graduated mm. early. They worked in the early part of the pandemic. They were super supported, and that's what the research shows. So there is a bit of me that says this this might have something to do with how we, I won't say how we treat them, but how how they are, how they belong. In the sense that, again, when, when and I'm, I'm not into in my day, by the way, but just thinking about, you know, some, some comparisons. I worked with a single consultant registrar team. They, they were the people I worked with all the time. So it was the, their ward round all the time. I worked with the registrar. I was on call with the same person. So that sense of belonging, yes, okay, it was called a firm structure. But I wonder if we've done enough to help that transition from being a student to being a doctor. And that's why they they are feeling that nobody loves them and therefore mm. they're being blamed for things. How can you be blamed for something if you don't know what it is you're being asked to do? And yet if you ask for help, people get irritated. So I can see how that kind of happens. But this is really critical because these people are the future generations that will become our next senior doctors and if we can't retain them within the workforce and that's not saying that everyone else is content by the way but if if we can't make them feel welcome it's one of the factors again going back to McKinsey's report that drives people away mm. so therefore they're going to start saying well I'm going to look at doing something else instead whether they do or not it's a different but it's raising that question in their minds which I, it never occurred to me when I when I became a doctor, but I but that's what I always wanted to do. So I'm probably slightly different. But it never occurred to me that I would leave medicine and do anything else. I I, I enjoyed the job. Yeah, it was hard, um, but I enjoyed the job. I failed some exams. Failed quite a lot of exams actually. Was told at one point I should give up clinical medicine and become a manager. But you know, here I am. I don't know whether people feel that way and I think that's for my generation those of us who are senior consultants senior leaders we, we we owe it to ourselves and to other people to make people feel part of a team and welcome um, you know in, in, in healthcare absolutely critical for me but I, you know that that may not be the whole answer and I'm, I don't for one moment suspect it is but we, we have been looking at some other research in this area so uh, there may be more to come in the future I mean, I really wholeheartedly agree with so much of what you've said there. I mean, the best placement that I had at medical school was my last, we did a, a sort of assistantship and I think we did eight or 12 weeks, eight, eight weeks maybe, attached to a team with one consultant, one registrar, one core trainee, you know, a couple of nurses. And I knew everyone and I walked onto the ward every day and they said, oh, hello, Clara, it's great to see you. And when I wasn't there, they said, well, where were you? There was no one there to read the drug chart for us. And, you know, I felt needed, I felt required. And, you know, I, I was still a medical student. I couldn't prescribe and I, you know, I wasn't the best in my year or anything like that. And I hadn't done my finals yet. But, you know, that I think was the best preparation for, for being a doctor. And I don't see that as much anymore. I don't see the same medical uh, student twice that's why I had one last year who was with me for six months and that was a really good experience I think for both of us because I felt like I taught her something and she taught me lots um but you know I don't think we get that and um I think that's sort of what you were alluding to Aisha when you were talking about the idea of community 
yes, it's team, but it's also, you know, the other stuff as well, the the making you feel human. Do you do you see any of your F1s more than once? <laughs> Or medical students. Ops and gyne is probably one of the worst specialties for the um, dissolution of the team structure. Mm. Um, and I, I feel bad for them because they, half the time, there isn't um, seen very much senior support, although there's always someone available, but not, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind half the time in Ops and gyne. There's, um And they, they work with someone new every day. And I, I wouldn't want to be a foundation doctor in Obsengaini because it really is very isolating and lonely. And mm. I, I can see why, you know, maybe people don't want to go into Obsengaini, um having done um, a foundation job in it because, it, you know, it's, it's quite terrible. <laughs> um, and actually the, the kind of sense of belonging comes a bit later on with Obsengaini. Mm. It comes when you hit your ST1, ST2 years, but by that point you're already in the training program, so it's tricky, it's hard to make those kind of decisions But doesn't that point, for me that point is something quite important Mm. that we need to look out for each other in a much more positive way, that you know, imagine if you could turn it on its head from why didn't you do that, or are you okay, you know where can I help you and those and I know I don't do clinical practice, so I, I I fully accept that you know I'm I'm not in that hot house environment that that people feel that they're in. But behaviours are choices, mm. um, and it does strike me that that we could collectively do an awful lot more, you know, if we just sort of reflected. Okay, was I cross with someone in the past week? How can I avoid doing that? Where can, where can I be an advocate? for them rather than um, challenging them uh, and having unreasonable expectations. I, I don't know, I just feels, it just feels that we, we may be much more part of the solution um, yeah. than, than we think, think we are. But I think, Colin, I think a lot of it is to do with the longevity of the interaction. So mm. most of the time, it isn't individual poor behaviours and um, high expectations on an individual, um, you know, decision or an individual action. It's the ability to work with a certain group of people for a protracted period of time to develop the rapport, to develop the trust and understanding to, and also be able to have the kind of um, two-way feedback in terms of your trainer knows what you can do and what to expect of you and then you can also feed back to your trainer and I think that it's that that's the case with not just you know more junior trainees but also um, the the more senior trainees but I think it's particularly um, lacking in the foundation program especially in in specialties such as mine um, because of the the lack of a team and the lack of the structure so I don't know. I th- I think I would disagree that it's not really to do with an, you know, a one-off occurrence of a poor behaviour, or it's more how long the relationship lasts and the feedback that you get from that relationship. I wonder if there's also something to be said for perception of behaviour, because you know, maybe if I said to somebody, "Oh, do you know what? Like, I, when I'm on a ward round, I don't want you to do X, Y, and Z." And if somebody's never met me before, um, I mean, I generally think that I'm quite kind and compassionate, but I'm sure there are times where I'm frustrated and I'm rushing to get to a list and I say it in a sort of a a hasty way. They might think, oh, Clara hates me. She thinks I'm terrible, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if I'd had a sort of 
an established relationship with that person over, you know, I saw them every day for months and months and I sort of knew them and they knew me. And sometimes I was a bit frustrated, but sometimes I was having a lovely day. It's almost like that feedback or that you need to do that or don't do that is contextualized within that established relationship rather than just, I've seen you once and I've said, why on earth haven't you checked a coag for this patient? They need to go to theatre. You know, the behaviour, you can change it as a one-off and try and be kind. But I think also contextualising that behaviour, and I think that's what you're saying, Aisha, about that sort of longevity of the relationship. So I think it's probably both things together. Um, I, I I don't disagree with that, um, Clara. But maybe that maybe that speaks more to how um, how can I put it? How we need to be a bit more careful if we don't see someone on a regular basis with whom we have a relationship who would be mm. perhaps more forgiving of you for for having a sharp word, um, because those first encounters matter, don't they? And they set Absolutely. a tone. So, so I don't disagree with you. I can see where you're coming from, but I'm just trying to think. Having said that, we don't often have that longitudinal relationship in 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 the way that we would prefer. How do we maximise the encounters we do have to to be positive? Um, that actually brings me uh, onto one of my the last of my. Uh, three themes before I attempt to tie all of this together, which is to explore that trainer experience. You know, what, you know, what can I do as a trainer? Do I feel frustrated as a trainer? Um, But before we move on to that, we're gonna have a quick message from our sponsor. Okay, back to the show. So as promised, the last of my three main themes is um, what we've heard from people on the NTS about what it's like to train. Put simply, you know, learning the art of being a doctor from both sides of the fence. And summarised glibly in this report, it's not great, especially what's being said by the trainers. Colin, can you tell us a little bit about what you noticed in this report from trainer experience and then what were your initial reflections? Did it did it surprise you? So uh, did it surprise me? Sadly, probably not. Um, but in the context of a sort of post-COVID, and I'm not even sure if we are post-COVID, by the way, but anyway, that's a different, <laughs> a different topic for a different day, isn't it? Uh, but in that sort of post-immediacy of the pandemic... One thing that was very obvious to us, and I think we've said publicly, is that the trainers themselves have their own well-being to look after. They are an integral and important part of the backlog recovery. And then on top of that, they're also uh, seeking to support training. And one of the very clear and obvious messages is that if we don't support career development for the next generation, i.e. if we don't, if I can use this word, support the pipeline, then we're not going to have the senior workforce in the future. So it, it's, not a, it's not an option to ignore it. But it's, it seems clear if you look at the um, table on being able to have time to do the role, that there is a substantial impact uh, on people's ability to be able to do it. And that seems on the face of it also to relate to how many uh, trainees an individual supervisor is responsible for. And that may well be compounded by the sense that 
you know, a, a trainer, supervisor, educator, or however we describe them, may not have uh, an ongoing longitudinal relationship, you know, in, in a mm. clinical setting. So all of those things are making that much more difficult. Um, we also, when we were, were looking at the, um, what we call SOMEP, the State of Medical Education and Practice Report, we looked at senior doctors and, and noticed that there were uh, findings that were much more alarming amongst trainers than they were amongst those who weren't involved um, in training. So, you know, were they supported by their senior staff? Um, much higher rates of no than if you weren't involved in training. So I I think we've overlooked, and now the question is, who's the we? Is it mm. us as a profession? Uh, is it the NHS as a system? Is it the job planning process? But whatever it is, uh, we haven't worked out how to value the importance of having those involved in the oversight of training as well as those going through training. Um, back, you know, back to it, back in my day again. But when, when I was a, a trainee, um, we didn't have that structure. Um, and does it, does it matter? I think it does matter because it's more structured if you've got someone. It's, it's that person who can provide a bit of guidance um, for you, can also point to you know, what, what you can do to be even better in, in the area that you're working. That, that's what those people are responsible for. The great news is they enjoy doing it. So mm -hmm. it's, not as if, it's not as if they've run out of steam in the sense of their enthusiasm, but they are challenged uh, about how they can actually deliver the role. And if we're going to talk about doubling medical student numbers, and the obvious consequence of that is going to be an increase in those entering postgraduate careers, then that's a key enabler. If we don't address that, then we're, in, in my view, in a very bad place. So support for our trainers uh, is really important. And we've just begun a strand of work to, to look at what more should be done to recognise and support trainers because they're absolutely key uh, in, in the training process. Falls, falls pretty quick at the first hurdle. Um, the <clears throat> stats that I wanted to, to pull up on this, which are mentioned in the report, um, are that 52% of trainers are measured to be at high or moderate risk of burnout. So we're going back to burnout again. Um, with a third, so 32%, um, saying that their work frustrates them to quite a high degree. But I think that the interesting one here really is what you've already sort of pulled out is less than half of all trainers, so 46%, told us that they were always able to use the time allocated to them in their role as trainer specifically for that purpose. And I think... You know, it's not that these people are, are not enthusiastic about training. They are frustrated because the time that they should be using to training, to, to, to train, sorry, they can't. Um, Aisha, do you, do you train? Do you find it frustrating? I, I do train, but uh, interesting that you said that because um, I, I think the, the, the transition between trainee to trainer is quite tricky. Um, and particularly when you then you're at the end of the line and you're going from ST7 to consultant, not that I'm there yet, but I, I feel that that would be quite a daunting prospect to maybe going from a trainee who who is pretty good, can do everything, but then suddenly 
you know, being the boss and having to deal with everything and everyone coming else to you and having to, you know, bail other people out. I think, you know, that's a part of the training programme in many training programmes that possibly isn't a, a, a focus. So, for instance, you know, the, the in Obs and Gynae, you know, there are quite a few different tick boxes on the curriculum about um, leadership, um, but there's not very much on you know, actually learning how to become a trainer. But then that's expected of you throughout your training as you gradually increase the amount of supervision that you do and train people more junior to you. But it's not actually form- formally acknowledged or recognised anywhere. Um, and then suddenly you're a consultant and you have all, all of the other trainees um, below you that you have to supervise. So it, I think it is a, it's a huge gap. Mm. So there's and I probably think... some different bits just to tease out if I just might, um, Aisha, Clara. Um, the first is that in terms of the survey, we're looking at people who are recognised with an annotation on the register as, as an educational clinical supervisor. But to your point, um, you don't have to be a consultant to do that. That's number one. It's about have you had the opportunity to be trained in that role? So we're increasingly seeing specialists and associate specialists taking on those responsibilities. There are proposals in some uh, specialties for whether the most senior trainees can take on some of that. And if you take my point that it's actually are you trained for the role, then that you know tier itself shouldn't be a barrier. But also, I, rem- I remember when, when I was um, a trainee, you know, there's an awful lot of what we might call peer training, isn't there? You know, you're helping people immediately below you. So you're probably doing more of it than you realise you're doing, I suspect. Um, but you probably haven't bracketed it or classified it uh, as that. And then there's the more specific role, which is more to do with the empowerment and what, what you can sign off on, as it were, as a trainer, which is probably the bit where that biggest transition occurs and most colleges run uh, programs for training the trainer because I think there are two parts for me one is the processy bit and the second bit is how to be an effective um, I'm going to use the word trainer but I often talk about rather than being a teacher how do I help somebody else learn it's what mm. I often call a learning facilitator but because um, I think that's the important thing and you probably do that pretty well most most trainees are very good whether that's with more junior trainees or medical students so you're doing it but just at a different um just at a different level i suspect but as i say in the survey this this is a very specific subgroup of people but the actual people involved in this will be much much broader And I think, you know, that, that again feeds back into Aisha's point that, you know, if you're, if you have bad experiences as a trainee training or facilitating learning, you're not going to go into those roles when you're a consultant, formal or informal, because you're just going to think, oh, do you know what? I've got so much pressure on my time already. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't like it. I'm not getting anything out of it or I don't have time or everyone's just going to be shouting at me because I haven't done it properly because I don't have time. And, you know, I wonder if, if you know, that kind of builds on that frustration. Um, drawing not quite to a close, but, you know, to sort of try and summarise and tie all this together. Um, just sort of going back to our three key areas. We've talked about well-being and burnout We've talked about discriminatory behaviours and we've talked about training, sort of trainees and trainers. Um, And the more 
I know I've already mentioned this, but the more I think about it, the more I just think that, you know, they're all linked. And some of the themes that we've already picked up on today, um, I think, show that, you know, not one problem exists and the other problem exists separately. They're all sort of feeding into each other. Um, Aisha, you mentioned the firm and I often think, oh, I just miss those days of having a sort of, you know, a bit more of a team around me. But obviously there wasn't quite as much of an old school firm as there used to be. Colin, do you think the firm would fix everything? You've you've worked in a firm. Do you think that's the answer to all of the NHS's problems? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. It's a very attractive uh, fallback, isn't it? People say, oh, well, the answer is the firm. No, I don't think it is. Do you know what I think? I think three things, and the danger in saying three is I've got to remember all of them now, isn't it? <laughs> the first is that I think we need to be much more serious about compassionate leadership. Um, and I I think we could all do with taking a long, hard look at the way we lead, how we do that, where is our empathy, our kindness uh, towards other people, because actually role modelling from the top would make a massive difference. Doesn't solve all the problems, doesn't solve the system problems, but it's a start. The second thing is that I think uh, it needs to be a hard look for all of us about our own values and behaviours. Because when you look through all that we've talked about, a lot of this is about values uh, and behaviours. And, and for me, that that is absolutely critical. And the third is probably actually just about caring about each other. Um, I know it's kind of about compassion, but it's it's slightly different. I, I'm I'm attributed to saying, and I'm not alone in saying it. Through the pandemic, I said used to say to my teams, you know, it's okay not to be okay, but please make sure that you have support when you're not okay, and that means you've got to be a little bit vulnerable and just share with share with other people so that they can help you and support you. And if we did a bit more of that, that might be quite a helpful place to get to. I think what I'm hearing from you, Colin, is that a lot of this is just about being human with each other. Um, And I think that probably goes back to what you were saying before, Aisha, about, you know, that community, that sense of... um, of respect that you get when you know the person that you're speaking to on the other end of the phone is a human being. You know, they're not an F1 on the ward. They are Sarah and she's got two dogs and she likes to run at the weekend. You know, you you end up speaking to each other with a lot more respect as human beings rather than, you know, these sort of cogs on the hierarchy that just have to almost sort of do their own thing without enmeshing together. Um, and I think, you know, I'm... I want to go back to something you mentioned um, earlier because I think it's quite a positive note to finish on, Colin, um, was you talked about Michael West and, and this idea of belonging. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think we've we've probably upped Maslow's citations by about 100 points since we started. Um, and, you know, when you have your basic needs met, you're generally, you're a better person and the people that are working with you, alongside you, are probably better people as well. Um as a sort of take home point, if there was one thing that you could do that might improve um, what the NTS looks like next year in terms of results, particularly burnout, well-being, training, all the things we've talked about, as a very practical thing, what what do you think doctors could do? One one thing that they could do tomorrow when they go to work. Um, well, I quite like. Um, there's a, a case study actually from Swindon Hospital 
where, where they did a little bit of survey of how can we improve on our NTS data and, and cleverly they came up with a plan on the basis of their survey with um, five R's, letter R. Um, but looking through that list, and I'll tease you to go and look at the rest of it, but one of the things they, they talked about was reflect and reset and respect. And actually, I think we could do a lot worse than just saying, am I respectful in how I am in my interactions, whether that's with colleagues or with patients or other professions, and just check ourselves when we're feeling that that compassion fatigue is setting in. Um, Chris Turner at UHCW talks a lot around that, and probably you've met with him as well, civility saves. I mean, I think, you know, some of that stuff is so um, important. But yeah, if we just start by saying, am I being respectful to everyone that I come across today? I like that a lot, and I will definitely think about that when I am at work. Well, not tomorrow, Friday. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today, but thank you both so much for your time. Uh, now, we've fixed all the problems at the uh, NHS. It's off for an early bedtime. Um, thank you, Colin and Aisha, for joining me, and thank you to all of our listeners for listening to Doctor Informed. That's all we have time for today. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people that you know. If you tell your friends about it, it really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you'll be notified when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us.